This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momentum. Welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momentum, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative as always. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to edition 132 of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. Today, I'm quite pleased to host Dr. Timothy Cho, Chairman of the Alchemist Accelerator. Dr. Cho is considered one of the early leaders in moving enterprises to the cloud, beginning with his tenure as President of Oracle On Demand. In 2004, he published the landmark book, The End of Software, which foretold the rise of enterprise SaaS and featured three startups that we know well today, Salesforce, NetSuite, and VMware. In 2005, he launched the first cloud uh, or class on cloud computing at Stanford University, cs309a.stanford.edu. Today, he is the chairman of the Alchemist Accelerator and serves on two public company boards, Blackbot and Teradata. Much of his time these days is focused on the Pediatric Cloud Project, the project to connect all one million healthcare machines in all of the children's hospital in the world. Dr. Cho, welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast today. Hey, thank you, Ken. I uh, really appreciate the invitation. And uh, I'm, I'm just amazed, 130, that's a lot of podcasts. <laughs> a million healthcare machines. That's a lot of machines. <laughs> and I will look forward to talking with you quite a bit about that. So I always like to start these off to understand a little about, you know, somebody's professional journey and what got them to where they're at now. Um, I always think about it as the red thread. What would you consider to be the red thread through your professional journey? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think I've always been interested in kind of what's next and thinking a lot about what's next and having the opportunity to do or move to what's next. I, you know, I started out, uh, most of my under, undergraduate graduate work was in the world of hardware. Um, I, I got out of school and I'm sitting there. I actually started teaching at Stanford in 1982, the introductory computer architecture class, because most of my work was in computer architecture. Computer architecture is a very fun, intellectually interesting area. But even back then, it was fairly obvious that, you know, the era of having many different architectures was coming to an end. And so my very first job was in operating systems. So I was like, you know, going, yeah, hardware is cool and fun, but you know, uh, it's not gonna work for the future. And you know, I progressed out of operating systems, ended up going to Oracle uh, in the days, just how dated this is, when Oracle 8 was going out the door to help, you know, get at that point in time, the largest hunk of database software in the world out the door. And then, you know, my tenure, my second tenure at, at Oracle was running the, the beginning of their cloud computing business, which we started in applications, right? Uh, financials, HR, all that stuff. So, you know, I moved into apps and it, it's, it's funny that it, as, as time has worn on, it's almost like I've recycled again because, 
you know, I got very interested, obviously, in the movement of delivering, uh, you know, computing as a cloud service. And a lot of the work that I'm doing today um, is really around what does this mean at the edge? So, yeah, you're always recycling to kind of think through, I'll say, what's next and kind of wanting to be there because that's where all the fun is, is, is being at the beginning, right? Absolutely. I love that theme. What's next? In fact, I think we're going to use that as the, the title for this uh, for this session. Uh, you know, I'm impressed. So, you know, not just starting in hardware, but, you know, by the way, it's a PhD in electrical engineering, right? Small uh, thing there, there. But as you said, you kind of went up the stack, OS, apps, cloud. Um, really fascinated with your time at uh, Oracle. What a great time to be in that company, given all the changes that were happening at the time. And of course, the whole move to the cloud, I think it was um, uh, just a couple years earlier that Microsoft quote unquote uh, um, uh, or uh, identified the internet as a uh, you know as a real uh, potential uh, direction for them. Um, I know some of the early work during that time at Oracle was focused on the the network computer um, uh, you know uh, and and I guess some famed what I'll call false starts around um, you know help spawn NetSuite and Salesforce. What uh, what attracted you to Oracle at the time and what were some of your key accomplishments? Yeah, you know, um, it's uh, kind of a little interesting story. So I, uh, I, this is late 99, right, or mid-99. You know, this is the heyday of, you know, let's call it the first bubble. And, you know, I actually, in the morning, uh, went on an interview with a company that was going to be funded to the tune of $50 million once they hired a CEO that was targeting the teenage Korean market. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sitting there going, well, what do I know about, you know, teenage? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, hey, you know, all this stuff, I mean, is happening the web vans, the e-toys is all happening. You're like, okay, maybe I don't know anything. I, I should go talk to this guy. And it, literally in a garage in Palo Alto. Okay, so that's the morning of that day. The afternoon of that day, because I made mention that I had worked at Oracle in the, in the mid-90s uh, and still knew a lot of people there, uh, they had said, hey, you got to come and talk to Larry about this new business we're going to spin out called business online. And so I said, okay, fine. So, you know, the afternoon was, I go over to the towers and Redwood Shores, go up to the, you know, 12th floor and Larry's big office and, and have this conversation with him. And I, I still remember, I asked him, I said, well, why are you interested in, I called it a fat exodus strategy for you know, some <laughs> people remember exodus was a big co-location thing, right? And, uh, you know, we, we had a spirited dialogue, obviously, at the end of this story, and I won't flesh out all the amusing parts of it. I ended up going back to Oracle to run what we thought of as a totally separate business, uh, delivering Oracle applications as a service. Um, and really, I'd say within the first six months, I realized this had nothing to do with the boxes it had everything to do with how you manage software and how you structure software. And, and so at the end of the day, I said, you know, yeah, obviously we can spin it out. It would become what I refer to as a mini EDS, which is what's the point of that. And so 
this, what we referred to at the time as a mainstreaming process, meaning, you know, making this part of how the software business began to run was really the objective. And, you know, the pattern we developed there, which was really a pattern around how you take a traditional software company and move them, let's call it, into the cloud. It's been copied by many traditional software companies. I think we never had the advantage, to your point about Salesforce and NetSuite, of you know building software from scratch, where if you build it from scratch, you, you will engineer it differently than what you would do in the old on-premises world. And frankly, I mean, we could do all the economics. In fact, the very first lecture I do at Stanford is about software economics. And I go, actually, if you engineer from scratch, you can get nearly a 10x improvement in cost structures versus, you know, the traditional model trying to move into this. Obviously, the advantage of the folks trying to do that in the traditional world is they do have customers and those customers have bought on-premises software. So if you can standardize the management of that software, you can derive, you know, incremental revenue from an existing base that you never were able to mine before. So that model was, as I said, copied by many of the traditional software companies. But obviously the explosive growth occurred, right, with the companies that basically said, eh, to hell with it. We're going to build financials from the ground up or CRM or purchasing or et cetera, et cetera. Long answer, I know. Uh, no, but think about all the different stories that came out of that time and all of the different success and patterns that we have. It uh, was a real influential time. And as you say, right before the a, a bit of the uh, the first, uh, uh, you know, meltdown there. So <laughs> interesting timing. And yeah. in 2005, you launched uh, what was the first class on cloud computing at Stanford University, which I think you just referred to a moment ago. Again, cs309a.stanford.edu. Was this viewed as a dramatic shift of the computer science curriculum, or was it simply an evolution, you know, from so-called thin client comp computing? I, I think at the time it was, you know, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, the the origin of that class is kind of curious. Uh, I, as I said, I, I taught computer architecture for 15 years as a you know as a part time hobby. In essence, I started out my career at Tandem Computers. Obviously, I was at Oracle, and I'd go you know just teach class and go back to work. And uh, one day, I actually had to fly to Bali to do a sales kickoff meeting and get back in 36 hours to teach class. So I went, this is getting a little stupid. <laughs> so I decided to give myself a leave of absence. So that leave of absence lasted six years. So when I left Oracle, I was hanging around the department and they said, oh, you know, come back and teach. I was like, God, that's a lot of work. And they said, oh, teach a seminar class. I said, well, that would be fun. You know, I've been a manager a lot of years, great people great opportunity, you know, put them together. I don't have to do any work. And uh, so we started this class. <clears throat> As you might guess, the first and last lectures are nearly identical because it's the ones I do. And in between, I have eight guest lectures. And, you know, we've had, if you go to that, you were reading the website. If you go to that website, you'll see it's pretty much a who's to. I mean, early on, 
it was, you know, CEOs of companies that I knew like Subrar at WebEx or Market, Salesforce. And then over the years, I began to realize, I know this isn't, this is pretty obvious that most people would not be offended to be asked. So it turned into a class, which, you know, uh, the, the students will say, well, it's just people Tim wants to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we, 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 you know, we've had Tony Shea, God bless his soul. Right. Uh, came, um, we, we, as I got interested in the area you've been in the whole IOT thing. I mean, we, we had the vice chairman of GE come. Um, we had the CEO of Agco, one of the big agricultural equipment manufacturers, mm-hmm. um, the CEO of CMS Energy, one of the very few women CEOs of a Fortune 500 who has just joined as a CEO at PG&E. Um, mm-hmm. last, you know, I didn't do class last year because, you know, the pandemic, et cetera. But the year before, we actually had Eric Duran from Zoom came before Zoom became a verb, a noun, <laughs> a way of life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think the unique thing about the class is, uh, while obviously on the Stanford campus, there's tons of startup activity going on. Um, but in this class, pretty much every CEO is a CEO of a, of a, fort, of a public company or a company about to be to go public. So, you know, Reed Hoffman came right before LinkedIn went public as an example, but it's, it's people who've had a long track record of success. And one of the things I think that the kids get out of it is, and one of my intents is I think a lot of times people see CEO of tech company as, you know, the hoodie wearing engineer, et cetera. And, (laughs) and this, was a way of letting them see, you know, many different variations of what CEO means and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and learn some of the lessons. I mean, there's hundreds of stories that came out of that class. And, uh, and, and my other motivation was really to kind of try to bring the rest of campus into the computing world. Because, you know, you'd be on campus and people say, well, where's computer science? You know, and they, you know, point to the Gates building. And I look at them and go, well, why are you pointing at the geology building or the mechanical engineering building or the sociology building? And so part of this was, and I, you know, very deliberately reach out to the med school, the law school, right, liberal arts, and try to bring them into this to have them see that, you know, the implication, as you well know, of technology on the world is is all around us and hopefully getting them to participate in that as opposed to standing to one side. You actually accelerated that quite a bit by joining the Alchemist Accelerator in 2013. I think one year after your fellow lecturer, Ravi Balani, had found it coming out of the work he had done at the Harvard Club. Tell us a bit about Alchemist and, and your role there. Yeah, um, you know, Ravi obviously is the is is the main man behind Alchemist. Uh, you know, Alchemist we like to think of it as you know the the premier B two B accelerator, and you know we've not focused at all on the consumer side of the world. Um, 
a lot of times we talk about how it's it's the non-sexy, but as people know, there's a lot of money that sits behind enterprise software. So, you know, we're very much in the mold of many accelerators. You know, we have a lot of applicants. We ferret through a certain set of them. We end up with maybe 20 to 30 of them that enter a class. That class lasts, let's call it three to four months and ends in a demo day. Um, and along the way, you know, me personally, um, you know, you act in the mentor role um, for some set of them. And there are a, a set of these, which I met these guys at the beginning of their journey, uh, launched darkly. Uh, Edith just got her company on that big NASDAQ billboard thing as one of the promising um uh, startups to watch. And, you know, I still remember her walking into demo day. Uh, I've been working with a young company called Yoda scale, which is doing cost observability for the, for cloud computing. Another one called Umnitsa, which is building software to do modern, you know, asset management in the connected state. So it's been fun to see, you know, the progress of many of these young companies and, and get involved and hopefully help them, as, as I know, you know that that that, that can be very rewarding. You know, um, I see that you've invested in more than 400 startups, over 34 exits. So hopefully, that's been a bit rewarding along the way. Uh, yeah. Beyond, of course, just the uh, you know the satisfaction you get of working with great uh, great people. What have you seen as some of the success factors for those companies that have you know gone on to uh, to ultimately win? You know, I, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, it all, as many you know, too, you know, the team, the people matter a lot. Uh, and then I think another thing that matters a lot is patience and perseverance. Um, you know, I, a lot of times, because we're talking to these companies who are, you know, two guys in PowerPoint slides or two guys in, you know, um, a little bit of software. I said, you know, the journey is long. And if you don't believe in the mission and what you're trying to do, you know, the world is not in on your side. They're, they're going to tell you what you're doing stupid and wrong and it's not going to work. I mean, just to <laughs> go back in time, I still remember we had customers that came in and wanted to see the computers that their quote applications were running on and go and shake the cage. Like you, in the modern area, you're like thinking, what the hell are those people thinking? Right. <laughs> but, but I think that that perseverance, patience and, and, you know, drive through a lot of dark time. I mean, there'll be way more dark times than there are good times. That's really what, you know, I think separates. If you have good quality people, and there's perseverance and drive. And then obviously luck is incredibly important in the conversation. But, you know, as many people say, you manufacture your own luck. I think those are the things that that are really end up being important. 
It's uh, you've done so many startups that these patterns really begin to merge. These meta patterns, in some sense, I sense between this and your uh, these uh, filler, if you will, CEOs you've had uh, at, at Stanford. You could write some really great books <laughs> just on the <laughs> meta patterns that emerge from both of these and such. So, I I know yeah. the the pandemic sadly has brought in uh, a new living and working pattern. You're certainly seeing that in uh, what were they calling it the Texodus? I think people even the Bay Area for Austin. What do you see as the future of startup-based innovation? And, and do you see what do you see as Silicon Valley's role in that? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I yeah, because I've been around here a long time. I've seen the old, you know, well, Silicon Valley's never gonna, you know, it's it's gonna, it's it's time is coming to a close and all that. Um I've never thought that that's really how to think about it. I think it's more like, as as we know, tech is pervading everything, consumer side, enterprise side, et cetera. And so shouldn't there be multiple, right, locations uh, on the planet that this type of innovation is fostered and, and encouraged and whatnot? And whether that's Texas or Shanghai or, you know, Berlin, you know, I think everybody in the on the planet has a role to play in this. I what I tell people about Silicon Valley, which, you know, you because I'm here, you know, oh, they'll bring in the, you know, the group from Germany who wants to know how to replicate Silicon Valley in Germany. And I'm like, I don't think that's <laughs> that's not really again, most people think, oh. We'll create a campus and we'll locate it next to a university. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, maybe. I said the unique thing is this: the concentration level here is so high, and by that I mean, you know, you're out, you know, with your kids uh, at a soccer game, and the mom sitting next to you, right, works at Google or Facebook or whatever. And you strike up a conversation and and out of that comes, uh, oh, well, we should get together and talk about this. And that very informal network is is pervasive here because of the concentration. Um, And then I think the second thing, and I always hope that this continues, is the ethic here. And and, one has to give credit to the, you know, the, the, the Hewlett and the Packard. The ethic of helping as an engineer, right? I mean, I want to help. I'm not going to help you with, you know, if I'm competing with you. Okay, fine, right? But outside of that, if I can help you, I will. And I think that, again, a lot of places in the world, if you say, well, I'd like it, people will go, well, why do you want my help? And what what's in it for me? <laughs> And I think that those two things, the density and the ethic, have been very instrumental to how this has prospered. And, you know, I don't know if that's the same thing that's going to happen in other locations, but it is something that is so much part of the water here that I don't see it going away anytime soon. And so, you know, it's great that obviously the the whole pandemics illustrate what we in tech have known for a while. I mean, we don't need to be right next to each other, right? There is, there are technological answers to this, but I do believe that the physical concentration you see here, particularly after we all get vaccinated, (laughs) (laughs) is, 
extremely useful. Um, so, so I'm not moving to Austin anytime soon, even though I have very good friends there. <laughs> well, we, I don't know what the Bay Area would be like without you there. So I think you need to you stay, stay there and continue to pay it forward, speaking to the Bay Area ethic, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm so proud of as well. Um, speaking of, of really paying it forward and giving back, uh, I'm really intrigued by your work on the uh, pediatric cloud project. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, connecting a million healthcare machines in all of the children's hospital in the world. Can you tell us a bit about the work? Yeah, um, you know, like all these stories, they they kind of have uh, your your red thread thing. So, you know, this story starts about five years ago. I'm teaching this class on cloud computing at Stanford. You know, we have I'll say 90% of the kids are local. Of course, I'm talking about the past, right? <laughs> 90% are local. 10 are you know kind of remote online. And one of the remote students sends me a note and says, "Oh, you know, I'm a little old school." I like to meet the professor. I went, okay, cool. So for you, you may remember California Avenue, there's a place called Joni's Cafe. So we meet at Joni's for breakfast. I'm sitting there, a guy walks in, I'm looking at him going, he doesn't look like a regular student, right? Turns out he has an MD, an MPH, an MBA, and he's chief of pediatric cardiology at Children's Hospital in Orange County. Oh, wow. So I'm looking at him <laughs> thinking, what the hell do I have to say to you? You know, what do <laughs> I don't know about any of that stuff. And he says, well, you know, I've decided that AI and big data and cloud computing need to meet. And so I've decided to come back and get a master's degree in bioinformatics at Stanford. <laughs> Later on, we're talking to the, the guy who heads up bioinformatics and he says, yeah, we saw his application. We went, ah, what the hell, right? <laughs> <laughs> it takes... I'm speaking uh, for those of you who've ever met uh, Dr. Anthony Chang, and uh, Dr. Chang takes uh, three and a half years to finish a two-year program because, number one, he has no idea how to program. Number two, he's still on call as chief of pediatric cardiology. And number three, at the ripe old age of, I probably won't get this exactly right, but I'll say he's in his early 50s at this point in time. He decides to adopt an 18-month-old and a six-month-old as a lifelong bachelor. <laughs> oh, my Lord, the classic underachiever. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people, you know, if Anthony can do it, I mean, why, why are you saying you can't? <laughs> so a Anthony is my portal into their world, and... So what I started to learn, you know, I got invited. He's very big into innovation and just released a book on artificial intelligence and medicine. And what I started to learn by meeting his tribe uh, was, uh, I mean, people who've been in this know this, but even to this day, uh, the primary means of data sharing for an MRI scan is called a CD-ROM. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, with a little sticky note on it with the password. <laughs> uh, you know, the implications of this, I mean, this is a story that actually occurred a, uh, a little over a year ago in Southern California. A kid went undiagnosed with brain cancer for a month because they couldn't, they had to keep re-imaging him because they couldn't move data around. And you're like going, are you kidding me, right? So on the one end, you, you hear stories like that. Then, 
you know, I'm, I'm on the board at Blackbot. And as a result of that, you know, I know the CEO at Save the Children. I've known her for quite some time. And I described a little bit how we were thinking about it. And she goes, well, you know, the number one killer of kids in Africa is pneumonia. And then you start getting more involved with the whole AI medicine thing. And Matt Lundgren runs the AI medicine program at Stanford. And time and time again, they all say the same thing, which is we can't build these AI diagnostics because we don't have enough data. And so, you know, as a computer guy, you know, I'm sitting here going, well, this is ridiculous, right? What is going on here is your guys are living in a disconnected world and they're disconnected inside the hospital and they're clearly disconnected across hospitals. And I, I looked at it and went, you know, it's kind of interesting when the internet connected a million computing machines, this is roughly 1994, that's when eBay and Netscape took off. That, that was critical mass, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's about 2,000, there might actually be more, but there's about 2,000 healthcare machines. And what do I mean by that? You know, uh, MRI scanners, ultrasounds, ventilators, uh, blood analyzers, et cetera, in a hospital. There are about 500 children's hospitals in the world, which most people are kind of surprised to hear how low a number it is. And so I'm going 500, 2,000, well, that's a million. And so about a year ago, we launched a project to connect all million healthcare machines in all the children's hospitals in the world. Because, you know, we all know that that the, that network connection changed how we buy stuff. So this could fundamentally alter children's healthcare on a planet-wide basis. And it's not that, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not that hard, but you know, for from a technological perspective, we believe we've come up with a very innovative, scalable way to go do this. And it's eminently doable technologically. The other reason, and some people say, well, why do you, why pediatrics? And I go, well, you know, I, I agree. I mean, we have no idea if the ultrasound sitting in an adult hospital or a children's hospital technologically, but in a group of 500 children's hospitals, what you quickly start to realize is there's about 20, 25 of them that matter. And if you move those 25, you'll move all 500. And, you know, at this point in time, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, Stanford is one of those. And actually, we uh, did the first deployment of what we refer to as an edge cloud server into Stanford like uh, last two months ago. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we, you know, it's crazy. On the one hand, we know it's kind of a moonshot project. But the other side of it is it's not. We we could do this in less than four years, and it would fundamentally shift everything. I mean, I'll just give you the simple example. You know, I, I made mention of pneumonia uh, in in Africa, well, it turns out it's not. There has been introductory work on how you build pneumonia diagnostics. Actually, Stanford's done a lot of that. But the challenge problem is you can't feed it enough data. Well, you know, right now we're staring at the idea that you could take 10 hospitals, fully instruments their ultrasounds, and build a 100-terabyte database in less than a year, which would completely eclipse 
the current imaging data commons project that NIH started about a year and a half ago, which is all on oncology for adults, mm -hmm. that imaging database is only a terabyte big. And we, we see a clear path to doing this. Well, once you've done that, then, okay, I can train um, the algorithms to do pneumonia detection. And then the cool side, you know, we were talking a little about edge computing earlier, is, hey, now I can take that inference engine and run it directly at the edge. So now the challenge in Africa is not low-cost scanner technology. There's tons of, in fact, Butterfly just went public. There's tons of low-cost scanner technology. The problem is there's nobody to read the scans. I, I was just talking to one of the leading pediatric uh, doctors in Rwanda, and this is interesting to think about. In the entire country, there is one pediatric cardiologist. One. Wow. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so the promise of what AI could mean uh, you know, on a global basis, which, by the way, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between Rwanda and rural America in terms of how much expertise you have out there. And the ability to move that expertise out to the point of care is like, you know, we're in earshot of doing stuff like this, which, you know, the, the implications are enormous. And I think this is a real opportunity. A lot of times, you know, when I'm talking to the kids in class, I... I like to say I have an opportunity to, to uh, shape young minds. <laughs> and so I tell them, I go, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it, the big challenges for the future are all in, you know, how, how are we going to deliver healthcare, education, uh, food, water? I mean, these fundamental infrastructures then how are they transformed by technology? You know, if you want to really go do something for good, let's go work on these problems. These are the big problems out there. And, you know, yeah, I know there's plenty of people who want to sell you more ads, but maybe if you're not so interested in that part of the problem, this part of the problem is at this point, in my mind, still untouched. Nobody is really addressing how you use computers and software to fundamentally reshape these bedrock industries that we have. What a, what a great cause. And you look at all of the impact this has um, clearly on, you know, the, the children, the hospital's life as we know it. And, uh, and even on and going back to computer architecture, right. And the ability to, to prove so much of that out. It's uh, it, it really is the perfect storm of opportunity. And, uh, and I understand why uh, you're so excited about uh, that being what's next for you and, um, and for, uh, for the industry in many cases. So, um, Dr. Joe, thank you for this insightful interview today. Well, I appreciate it, Ken. I, uh, yeah, I, I have known about your work, your team's work for quite some time. So it's really a pleasure to meet you. As well. I think there's a, a lot of mutual admiration. And I know, uh, especially the work you've done at, uh, at the uh, Alchemist, um, there's um, certainly a, a good Venn between uh, all of us in, in that. So this has been Dr. Timothy Cho, chairman of the Alchemist Accelerator, and uh, I'd say the uh, uh, king of what's next. Thank you for <laughs> listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. 
You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.